Well, good morning and good evening, everyone. Lovely to have you here with us. Why don't I pray before we think about God's word to us today? Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us clear minds and open hearts as we hear your word to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm not a great reader of romance fiction. Although I think I may have read one or two in days gone by just to have a look. But I have heard of the author Francine Rivers. Let me tell you a little bit about Francine. Francine grew up in the United States of America. She did English at college and married soon afterwards. She was a big reader and she started reading romance fiction and was soon hooked. She said that she used her romance fiction, I guess, as a way of escape. And it became for her increasingly something of an addiction. The romance gave her a high. Now, early on in Francine's marriage, uh, she very sadly had a miscarriage. And she said that she dealt with the grief of that by reading romance fiction. But, as is often the case with addictions... Reading romance fiction wasn't quite enough for her. Uh, So she started writing romance fiction. And, as it happened, she was soon published. Now, um, her marriage was going well, but her romance fiction reading and writing, I guess, helped her to, I guess, ignore the problem uh, and just get on with other things and avoid facing what she was going through. And then she got to the point where she realised that if she had a choice between would she choose her writing of fiction or her husband and children, she realised that she'd choose writing. And she thought, what has gone wrong with me? I wonder whether you ever feel like your life has gone wrong, that it's been ruined. Now, it may not be romance fiction addiction or a failing marriage, as it was in the case of Francine, but things have gone wrong and your life has been messed up. Perhaps it's because you've made some poor choices in the past and you've brought it upon yourself in your view. Perhaps you made some bad decisions with respect to relationships or work or or, or marriage or, or whatever. Or perhaps the difficulties you're facing at the moment have pretty much nothing to do with you. You're a victim of what other people have done or of circumstance. But whatever the case is, perhaps you're sitting here this morning or this evening listening to this, overcome with sadness, regret, you feel that your life has been irretrievably ruined. Now, if that's the case for you, the passage we're looking at today has a really powerful message for you. And if it's not the case for you today, today's passage still has a really powerful message as we navigate life at the moment. Now, as many of you will know, we're concluding our series in the book of Genesis, which we've been going through this term. And uh, this morning and this evening, we're looking at chapters 42 to 50. And at the end of chapter 50, which is the last chapter of Genesis, God's work really speaks most powerfully and says some things that are very relevant to us and our time. They're very relevant as we go through personal crises, but also extremely relevant as we think about our current national crisis. Our title for our sermon today is Joseph, God Intended It for Good. 
And many of you, I hope, will have downloaded uh, the outline, which you would have got from our website. And you'll see from that uh, that firstly, I'm going to do a quick overview of Genesis chapters 42 through to 50. Then I'm going to focus in on two of the main characters, in this case, Judah and Joseph. And then finally, I want to really unpack one very helpful spiritual point which comes out of this passage under the heading, God intended it for good. So let's start with our first section, Genesis 42 to 50, with a bit of a quick overview. Now, many of you will remember that Abraham was called by God. Abraham was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, the second youngest of which was Joseph, and Joseph was his favourite. Now, as we've looked at the end of Genesis, we've seen that Joseph's life has been and continues to be a real roller coaster of an existence. When he was younger, his brothers had planned to murder him, but then changed their mind and decided to sell him into slavery. And the brothers told Joseph's father that Joseph had been killed by wild animals. Well, Joseph, of course, ended up in Egypt, where he continued to have the ups and downs. He worked for a guy called Potiphar and rose to quite a level of success in that household. But then he was wrongfully and unfairly imprisoned. But eventually he got out of prison and was able to interpret a dream which the Egyptian pharaoh had. And the dream, he said, indicated that God was telling them that there was going to be seven years of plenty in Egypt, followed by seven years of famine. Pharaoh decided to place Joseph in charge of events, and Joseph went about, I guess, storing and collecting as much grain as he could during the seven years of plenty, so that when the seven years of famine started, Egypt would be looked after, and uh, as it turns out, people from all around the local area would come to Egypt seeking food. And in chapter 42, at the start of our passage for today, Joseph's brother and fathers up in the Promised Land learn that there is grain in Egypt. There's famine up in the Promised Land, but there's grain in Egypt, so a number of them decide to travel down to Egypt to see whether they can buy food. And the interesting thing is that when uh, the brothers, or most of the brothers, arrive in Egypt, the person they find themselves standing before, requesting food, is in fact Joseph. And here's the thing. Joseph recognises his brothers, but his brothers don't recognise him. Well, stuff happens, which you can read about in the next few chapters. But in chapter 45, Joseph finally reveals to his brothers who he is. Now, his brothers were actually terrified at this point that the Prime Minister of Egypt, which is what Joseph had become, was in fact the brother who they'd wanted to kill and then sold into slavery. If ever the shoe was on the other foot, this is it. So they're terrified. But Joseph very graciously reassures his brothers and urges them to go and get their father and the other brother come down to Egypt where they'll be well looked after. And this is what takes place. Jacob and the sons and their families move down to Egypt where they settle in an area called Goshen, which was a very fertile, fertile area in the Nile Delta region. Now, Jacob, of course, learns that his son Joseph is still alive. Remember, he thought he'd been dead for a number of years. Here's Joseph alive. And we read in the passage about a very, I guess, emotional reunion between the two, as I'm sure you could appreciate. Then, as Jacob nears the end of his life, in chapter 49, he blesses 
or gives blessings to each of his sons and then dies at the end of the chapter. And then in chapter 50, various things happen at the end of which Joseph himself dies. And then we've reached the end, the end of the book of Genesis, end of Genesis chapter 50, and the children of Israel, the children of Jacob, are living in Egypt. That's where Genesis concludes. Now I've gone over this pretty quickly because what I want to do now is to go back and focus on two people and one key idea. The two people are Judah and Joseph. Judah was the fourth eldest of the brothers and Joseph was of course the person we've really focused on here, the second youngest of the brothers. Let's think about Judah. Now with Judah, it's really a case of a flawed man who comes good. In Genesis 37, we read that Judah, like the other brothers, was thinking about doing harm to Joseph. The brothers wanted to kill him. Judah, in fact, says, now let's sell him into slavery. Still pretty nasty. And then in Genesis chapter 38, we read an incident whereby Judah goes out and sleeps with someone who he believes is a prostitute. So, a flawed individual. But then as we read on through Genesis, we see that things start to turn. Uh, Genesis 43, uh, Judah very, uh, I think, nobly uh, says to his father that he will guarantee the safety of his son, of Jacob's son, Benjamin, his brother. He will guarantee his safety. He takes it upon himself to assure his father that he will look after Benjamin. And then Genesis 44, when it looks like that Benjamin may have to stay in Egypt, Judah uh, very nobly once again says uh, to Joseph, look, don't keep Benjamin, keep me in his place. He offers himself in Benjamin's place to be held captive in Egypt. And in doing this, we also see that Judah has, seems to have a real concern for his father. So some noble acts, genuine concern for his father, how Judah has changed. Now, it's exciting when we see people change for the better, whether it be us ourselves or someone we know well. We see someone who struggled with some sort of character flaw or weakness or addiction, and then they've been turned around. Now, God is in the, in the business of not just saving people, but turning their lives around for the better, like Judas. I will have told some of you in the past about Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was a very famous American runner. He competed in the 1936 Olympic Games. Then, of course, the war broke out. He found himself in the Air Force and his plane came down over the Pacific. Louis managed to survive in a life raft on the ocean for over 40 days, but ended up in a Japanese POW camp, where, like so many prisoners, he was thoroughly brutalised by the Japanese prison guards. Thankfully, Louis survived the war and returned to the United States, something of a hero, but from what we've read about him and heard about him, he clearly had post-traumatic stress disorder. He very quickly became an alcoholic and his marriage really was on the rocks. Things looked very dire. But then, in 1950, listening to the preaching of Billy Graham, he heard the good news about Jesus explained and he became a Christian. He became a follower of Jesus. He sought God's forgiveness and resolved to follow him. But not only was Louis saved, but God really started to turn his life around. In 1950, he returned to Japan. Remember, this is just five years after the war. And he went to a prison 
where many of the Japanese war criminals were incarcerated, including some of his former guards. He shared the gospel with them, and a number of these guards became believers. And Zamperini also had the opportunity to tell many of his former guards that he forgave them. Well, if we know much about Japanese prisoner of war camps during the Second World War, we would know that the fact that Zamperini could go back and forgive his captors was an incredible thing. What a change. When he'd been in prison, or when he'd been in prison during the war, he'd wanted to get revenge on the guards. Now he was there forgiving them. So God is in the business of turning lives around. Judas, Zamperini's, but also us. He can do the same for us. Now getting back to Judah, we read in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, that when Jacob is blessing his sons, he gets to Judah and he gives Judah a very interesting blessing, a very positive blessing, which includes the following in verse 10. Jacob says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. This is a reference to Jesus coming. And of course, Jesus was in the line of Judah. Many centuries hence, as the blessing suggests, that God's Messiah, God's Saviour, the Son of God, would come in the line of Judah. So there are some thoughts about Judah. A flawed man turned around by God turns good. Well, let's get to Joseph now, who's the more uh, significant character, I guess, here. And in particular, I want to focus on what Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50. You see, in Genesis 50, uh, Jacob, uh, the brother's father, has just died. And Joseph's brothers, we see, uh, are scared because they think, oh, now it could be payback time for Joseph. Our father's gone. Perhaps that was moderating Joseph a bit. Jacob is now dead. Who knows what Joseph will do to us? And they're scared. They're worried that, like I guess many people would, that Joseph is going to wreak his revenge. But then Joseph says some things which are utterly remarkable. Uh, and two aspects in particular I want to highlight. Look at verse 19 of chapter 50. Joseph said to them, that's his brothers, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Now here's the first thing which he says, which is really noteworthy. Joseph says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You see, Joseph, he's no fool. He remembers what his brothers did to him, what they had in their minds to, to do. They did intend to harm him. But Joseph sees the big picture and sees that through this bad act on behalf of his brothers, God was still able to do great good. He expresses trust in God's goodness. He sees God's hand in what happens. Uh, he, he relies on God's oversight. Now, I guess relying on God's um, oversight, sovereignty, big picture, is something which is just so practical for us and it's so helpful for us in navigating the ups and downs of life. Everyone's life goes through highs and lows. But if we can trust in God's goodness, if we can know God that he's with us through the ups and the downs, it, I guess, helps us to deal with those extremes. 
Now, this is a help, helpful truth, particularly for many people, but particularly for professional sports people, something I've looked into a bit in recent times. You see, if you're a professional sports person and you're playing well, things are on the up. You're in the team. You're popular with fans. Uh, you're a success. Your income is secure. But then, what happens if you lose form or get injured? You're out of the team. You may not be popular with the fans. You're not achieving success. There may be problems with your income. Now, the life of a professional sports person can be a precarious one. But I'm aware that many Christian professional sports people find that knowing God and trusting in God and his goodness helps them as they go through these incredible ups and downs. Back to Joseph. The next positive bombshell that Joseph drops is that he then expresses forgiveness for his brothers. Look at verse 21. He says to them, So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Now, can I say that it can be very hard for anyone to forgive someone else. Forgiveness is hard. But how can you forgive people who'd wanted to kill you, who'd ended up selling you into slavery? And what about when those people are members of your own family, your own brothers? Or you may wonder, if you'd been in a Japanese prisoner of war camp, how could you ever forgive your Japanese prison guards? Well, in the case of Joseph and in the case of Louis Zamperini, it would have been God who'd enabled them to do that. In the same way that God helped Zamperini, he helped Joseph and he can help us as well. You see, if we're Christian believers, we're aware of how much God has forgiven us and so as forgiven people, with the Holy Spirit, we're better enabled to forgive others. Well, then chapter 50 continues... And we see that uh, not only uh, does Joseph trust in God's goodness, not only does Joseph forgive his brothers, but he also trusts God's promises. Verse 24, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And this is, of course, what did take place. Uh, in a few hundred years' time, under the leadership of Moses, the people of Israel did, of course, return to the Promised Land. Now, you may wonder, you know, how did Joseph manage all this, this, this level of trust, this level of forgiveness, this level of believing in God's promises? Is he some sort of superman? Well, Joseph isn't a superman, he is a man who, of course, trusts in a super God. You see, without God, Joseph would never have been able to do any of the things which happened. Uh, God was with him, looking after him, watching over him. Uh, Joseph realised this, and it was his, I guess, relationship with God, his knowledge of God, which enabled him to do these things. Knowing that God helps us and is with us can help us navigate the good and the bad in life, can help us to forgive those who've wronged us, and can help us to have confidence in the future. So there's Judah and Joseph. 
But finally, I want to particularly focus on the idea that God intended it for good. These events for good, part three. Remember in verse 20 of this chapter, chapter 50, Joseph says, you intended to harm me, referring to his brother selling him into slavery, but God intended it for good. You see, God's sovereignty over the world, over events, is such that not only can God take good events in this world and use them for good, God can take bad events in this world and use them for good as well. Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery was certainly a bad event, but it led to Joseph becoming the Prime Minister of Egypt and storing up grain and being in a position to rescue many people, including the members of his own family. God used bad for great good. Let's move forward hundreds of years to the ultimate example. Jesus, the Son of God, lives and breathes on this planet, but then is betrayed, abandoned, beaten and crucified. Clearly the worst event in history. Yet this worst event in history, as many of us would know, is the basis of the greatest thing in history. The fact that his death is the means by which we can have our wrongdoings forgiven, is the means by which we can have our relationship with God restored, we can have our shame removed, and we can start to live the sorts of lives that God created us to live. God took this horrible event, the crucifixion of his son, and achieved incredible good. And this sort of thing is happening all the time. Go forward a bit in the Bible to Acts chapters 6 to 8. There's a guy called Stephen, my namesake. He was a keen Christian. He went around telling people about Jesus, but opposition arose and they stoned Stephen to death. Then after this, a great persecution broke out against the young Christian church. Clearly a bad event. But as the church scattered across the ancient world, they took the message of Jesus with them and people became Christians throughout the ancient world. God used this bad event to achieve great good. Let's go to the 18th century. In the 18th century, there was a gentleman by the name of John Wesley. He was a Church of England minister. He was very keen for people to hear the good news about Jesus. But the Church of England at that time was often very nominal and didn't like many of the things he said. So they banned Wesley from many church pulpits. What did Wesley do? Being banned from various church pulpits, he went out and preached in the fields, in the halls, in people's homes. And many people were saved. It was a time of great revival in England. God used bad to achieve great good. Well, let's give you some more examples. The 19th century, the Christian mission to China really gets underway. Missionaries turn up, share the good news about Jesus. But then in the 20th century, the communists gained power and by 1953, all the Christian missionaries were expelled from the country. At about this time, in the 1950s, there were perhaps maybe one million Chinese Christians. Missionaries out of the country, under communist rule, the decades passed. Then it became aware, we became aware that the church in China was growing. And today, and it's very hard to get accurate estimates, there may be somewhere between 30 million to 100 million Chinese Christians. You'd think that the missionaries getting thrown out of China was clearly a bad thing, but God used that bad thing to achieve 
great good. The church has grown there under persecution, bad used for good. Now, could I get a little personal just for a few moments? Uh, in 1989, I suffered depression for about a year. It was a horrible year. I hated it. I wondered whether the depression would ever leave or lift. It was a real ordeal. I would wake up some mornings and just think, oh, I have to exist throughout the day. But the depression eventually passed, and today I can look back upon that really nasty experience and appreciate what I learned during that year. You see, having gone through that, I think, has given me an empathy or an understanding with lots of things which I otherwise wouldn't have had empathy or understanding about. And it's been very helpful to me in my work as a minister as well. Bad event, but God has used it for great good. More examples. Eloise Wellings is an Australian long-distance runner. She was something of a child prodigy. In 2000, as a 16-year-old, she achieved selection in the Australian team to go to the Sydney Olympics. Yet just before the game started, she developed a stress fracture in her hip. Now, I spoke to Eloise a few years ago, and she told me that she became a Christian because of that stress fracture. You think, knocked out of the Olympics, worst thing in the world for an athlete. But it turned out to be almost the best thing in the world for her. You see, what happened is Eloise, as a 16-year-old, she was still at school, she withdrew into herself and cut herself off from people. But one day at school, a girl came up to her and said, Eloise, I've been praying for you, and so have some of my friends from church. God has a great plan for your life. And this really impacted the young Eloise. She went along to church, uh, the lights went on, and she became a follower of Jesus. And since then, Eloise is still running, uh, she's had the real ups and downs in her athletics career as well. She's been dogged by injuries throughout that time and has had, when I spoke to her two years ago, 11 stress fractures. But she says that God has used those injuries to strengthen her faith. She says, each time they happen, I cling to Romans 8.28, which is that great passage which says that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Now, I've given quite a few examples there because I'm really wanting to emphasise, if you haven't picked it up, that God doesn't just work for the good stuff in life. He can take even the bad stuff, which you may be experiencing right now, and he can actually use it for great good. So what about you? What about us now? I mean, the world at the moment is being hammered by the COVID-19 pandemic. People have died. People have lost their jobs. Lives are being greatly changed. Domestic violence really sadly has gone up. It's clearly a horrible situation. How should we think about that as Christians? Well, clearly we, we pray that it would finish. It is horrible. But we can also know that in the same way as he has in the past, worked through the horrible things in this world, God can actually still work good through the horrible situation we're currently going through. Now, what are those God, good things God may want to achieve or be able to achieve? I don't know, but just let me give you two thoughts. Throughout Australia at the moment, an awful lot of church services have gone online. 
where people can, I guess, access them on, on the internet. And I'm wondering whether this might mean that a lot of people who don't usually go to church and hear God's word preached will hear it in the privacy of their own homes on their computers. Maybe that could be a good impact. On a personal level, uh, now that I'm spending most of my time working at home online and my kids are at home doing school online, I found myself doing a lot, spending a lot more time with my kids, not just with their schoolwork, but you know, doing fun things, keeping active, uh, watching videos together. And I actually really appreciate that. Now, I'm not saying that's why these things are taking place. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that God can still work good through the current situation. We should pray for it to finish, but we should also pray that God would do good things through it while it's continuing. And I wonder about you. I asked earlier on, do you sometimes feel that your life has been ruined? Perhaps irretrievably so. You've experienced horrible things in the past. You've done horrible things in the past. Now, without wanting to suggest for any moment that those things may not be incredibly difficult to deal with, the encouraging truth from the Scriptures is that God is bigger than our mistakes. God is bigger than our tragedies. God can use even them, whatever they may be, for good. Well, let me conclude. Today we find ourselves at the end of our series in the book of Genesis. As we've gone through Genesis, we've seen God's grace, God's love, God's mercy, God's promises. We've seen him being faithful to highly flawed people. We've seen him make preparation for the coming of Jesus many centuries into the future. And here at the end of the book, it's been underlined to us that God can take even bad things and use them for good. Joseph's brothers did evil, but God intended it for good. What about Francine Rivers, the lady I mentioned at the start of the sermon, the romance novelist. Well, when he left her, her life had gone pear-shaped. But then she and her family moved house and they found themselves living between two Christian families. Francine was invited to church and she thought, look, I'm so desperate, I'll try anything. She went along and to cut a long story short, she, her husband, became believers, became Christians. And, as some of you may know, she continued writing but became quite a famous and successful Christian novelist. Now, how was it that Francine came to faith? Well, God called her, but looking at the circumstances in which she lived, obviously her Christian friends and the church she went to played a big part, but it was perhaps her awareness of her problems, her addiction, the difficulties in her marriage, which made her, I guess, more open to hearing the good news about Jesus from those friends or at that church. So the big idea uh, this morning or this evening as we finish the book of Genesis is that God, in his loving sovereignty, can use all things, good or bad, for good. And can I say what a great encouragement that is for all of us at all times, but particularly at a time like this. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you are with us, that you love us, that you know us, and that you are sovereign over everything which takes place in this world. We are so thankful for the truth that you can work good through all things in life, the good and the bad, and thank you that we can trust and rely on this truth in our lives, and particularly at this time 
of uh, national concern. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.